Lord, come and be with us. Come and teach us. Speak to us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. Um, we don't want to hear just stories or just uh, nice teaching, Lord. We want your Holy Spirit to stir us and to guide us, Lord, especially, Lord, into every purpose and every assignment that you have prepared for us. So be with me, Lord. Be with everyone, Lord, who is listening um, to this. Just guide us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want you to imagine something with me. Let's say you're looking for a job, or maybe you've actually gone for a job interview before, right? And you go through the hoops, and you go through the first preliminary, and the second, and the third, and after that, you get to meet the big boss. And the big boss spends time with you, and uh, you get to be with him, and he actually brings you to, you know, his office, penthouse office. Beautiful uh, scene, right? You look out there and wow, it's great. And he sells you a vision. He tells you how great his company is. You know how big bosses are, right? And how promising your career will be if you join them. And he'll tell you, wow, you know, you get to have regional, global opportunities. You get to see the world. You get to travel, not just business class maybe first class. You get to sleep in the best hotels. You have an awesome career path. You have an attractive remuneration, a wonderful pay package with great perks, wonderful fringe benefits. And, you know, you even get to be your own boss. Sounds good? Sounds good, right? Yeah. And so he actually brings you to a place where you can see things. He sells you his vision. He makes a proposition and he states the conditions. What happens after that? They say, well, you join them. You join him. It's exciting. And you get all of these things. But what do you give in exchange? Later on, you find out you actually gave in exchange for all these things. You gave your life. You exchange your marriage. You exchange your family. And you exchange even your health. So I ask you a question, who's really the boss? Who's really the boss? See, sometimes when we look at a proposition like this, as we study this temptation, we'll see that actually Satan wants to be the boss. When he approaches Jesus, he has that intention in his heart. Of course, we know it's diabolical. It's not a good intention. But he wants to be boss. But actually, when you look through and study it, you see that Jesus actually shows Satan who really is boss. But the question for us to consider as we study this today is at the end, who is your boss? And that's why the title, Who's the Boss? We're going to read through the scriptures and again, we'll study the context of this temptation. And I want to go through that quickly. Pray for me. It's not easy because there are quite a few points there to share with you. Because I want to get into, finally, the application. That, that, you know, to me, that's the most important. No point just understanding a context, a Bible passage, and then don't see any application or meaning or significance for us. So in this illustration that I gave you in this introduction, you know, we look at how a big boss, perhaps, you know, would proposition a person, a candidate. Let's go to the scene in the wilderness back now, in the mountain. And we're going to read the passage from Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 to 10. And again, the devil took Jesus up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And verse 10, Jesus then answered and replies and says to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only you shall serve. Let's start with some observations. We see that, you know, Satan is done with the small talk. Let's get down to real business. No more does he start with, if you are the Son of God, you know, in like trying to draw Jesus in. I mean, he's, he tried it once, didn't work. He tried it a second time, it didn't work. Now, here comes 
the big thing. No more twisting, no more turning. Satan is like coming up to Jesus and he says like in Godfather style, let me make you an offer you cannot refuse. He's pulling out all stops. First thing we see, he brings him to a location. We started in the wilderness, we went to the temple, and now the devil brings him up to an exceedingly high mountain. Now mountains are very significant in the Bible. Mountains are, as we know, physically high places. So if you read the Old Testament, you will find many references to mountains and also to high places. Now you realize that even at times of Israel's uh, turning away from God and then later on coming back, they may have returned to the Lord, but they never really pulled down the high places. Now what do those mean? It means that they have set up places of worship on these mountains or on these hills. So mountains are places of encounter. They are places where you meet with God and God meets with the people. They are places of power, places of worship as well as of sacrifice. And that's why it's significant. Satan brings Jesus to this one location and he says, you know, this is it now. This is like the showdown. It's either this or nothing at all. On the location, up there on the mountain, Satan shows him. Because the mountain is also a place where you can see far and you get a great panoramic view. So there's a vision. And Satan shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And this is also significant because it shows us, again, the consistency of Scripture where 1 John chapter 2 actually says, the temptations or the things of the world, they are not new. They are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the what? The eyes. In Genesis chapter 3, in the very first temptation, Eve was tempted when she saw. And so you be careful because the things that draw us usually it will play on our eyes. What we see, we want. So when you walk down Orchard Road, that's why you see those big signs. Sale. The greatest. The best. All these things. And coming from an advertising marketing background, we know how important visual merchandise is. Very, very important. Even today on social media, we are wanting not just to put up a line, we have to put up a picture so that it grabs a person's attention. And Satan shows Jesus the kingdoms and all its glory and it must have been, he was trying to appeal or to attract Jesus who would be king. I mean, this is the Messiah. This is not any old person who says, no, like, you give me this, it's no use. No, I, 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 I don't know how to run a kingdom. No, Jesus is the Messiah. See, Satan only knows that he tempts us and he's got some meaning in that temptation when it's something we desire. No point giving you something that you don't like, no use. I mean, look, the F1 just went on, right? You give me ringside, or not, not ringside, grandstand tickets, and I don't know what to do with them. Because I, I won't be tempted. I'm not interested in that. But if it's something that is appealing to you, you would be tempted. And it sounds totally in line with the Father's will for the Son. The Father says, this is the King. This is the Messiah. And so Satan is saying, nothing wrong. What? I mean, the Father is going to give you the kingdom anyway. What? I'm just offering you the same thing. So first, as a location, next, careful with your eyes when you're brought to a certain place and you begin to see something. Next comes the proposition. Satan, after showing all these things to Jesus, he says, all these things I will give you. And Satan is not bluffing, you know. This is one time Satan is actually telling the truth because it is well within his right to give. Now, it's not recorded in Matthew, but if you look in Luke chapter 4, verse 6, the devil actually says this, All this authority I will give you, and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. It is well within the right and the authority of the devil because it belonged to him. Now, we know that 
way, way in the beginning, Adam was the one who was told that he is to rule on behalf of God and to tend the garden as well as to establish the kingdom. But because of his disobedience, Adam relinquished that right and handed it over to Satan. Now Jesus, you notice, never disputed this point about Satan giving it to him. Later on in John chapter 12, verse 31, John chapter 16, verse 11, Satan is actually referred to as the ruler of this world. Jesus himself gave him this reference. And so Jesus knew that he was telling the truth. I like this line that the enemy used. All these things I give to you. Do you know that Jesus later on in Matthew chapter 6, he also says, all these things you have need of. And the Father knows, right? But seek first the kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Compare and contrast the different all these things that the enemy wants to entice us with versus the all these things that the Father knows we have need of. He wants to just lavish us with all these things. And these are not necessarily bad things, but these are things that may distract us. But what is important to God and the kingdom is that all these things refer to our needs and as long as we're taken care of, that's good. You see the difference? How the enemy uses all these things and how Jesus later would use all these things. Now it's very scary because today some people look at Matthew chapter 6 and actually interprets all these things to mean branded goods, private jets, bungalows, big bank accounts. Because of that one line that says, you know, all these things the Gentiles seek after. Now what do they seek? Private jets, bungalows, branded goods. And the Father knows you have need of these things. Now that's totally interpretation out of context. Right? Because Jesus was talking about the clothes you wear, the food you eat. And that life is actually even more than that. You see? Can you see how scary it is that we can take one line and twist it just like the twister did. And Satan's saying, you can have it all now. Why wait so long? No need to wait. All the kingdoms, all the glory, all the authority, I can give this to you. Don't wait until Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 4, you can have it already. Sounds good, eh? Because in Matthew 28 verse 18, Jesus then finally declares, all authority has been given to me. He takes it back. The devil knows. And so he says, don't wait so many chapters later. Let's end it now. Deal or no deal? And even then, Matthew chapter 28 doesn't really end the story because Jesus would still have to, in inverted commas, wait to enforce that all the way through in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. When finally, only after the seventh trumpet is sounded, then is declared, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. Oh, very long wait there. 2,000 years later, still have not sounded that trumpet, you know. You see? And so the enemy is like coming to you and say, Hey, Jesus, all this kingdom, all the authority, now. I'll make you this offer you cannot refuse. Sounds good, yeah? Deal or no deal? And Satan wants to be in control. He wants to be the boss because he knows that if Jesus would accept that, that puts him in the driver's seat. But don't stop there. Go on. Because the enemy gives a condition. It's all these things I'll give to you if. Now, when you read your Bible, Dr. Neil Patterson always says this. Read the ifs and the buts. All these little connecting words, you've got to read them. If you will fall down and worship me. You know, if I were to do a movie about the temptation or a sitcom probably it would be, you know, Satan would declare, you know, all these things, you see, all the kingdom, all the glory I give to you. If you will fall down and worship me. And you're just quietly like, if you, if you, if you. 
You know, it's like in passing, just happened to say it, maybe turn away, and maybe Jesus didn't hear that clause. You've got to read the fine print, guys. You've got to read the fine print. That's why I always suggest to people and encourage them, love the blessings of God in the Bible, but heed the warnings. You notice many of us would, would just shout out the, the beautiful things and the promises and the hallelujah, but we never talk about the warnings. And here the alarm bells are ringing. If you will fall down and worship me. How many of you, when you purchase something on the web, you know, and then, or you want to download something, and you click, and suddenly the terms and conditions come out, and you say, agree, and then you never read, you just click agree. We do that, don't we? Because we're just too lazy to read all that legal jargon. Now, you be careful, you know. Because if the enemy comes and offers you something, and just say, no, man, I just click agree, can. And just download everything right now, free of charge. If you will bow down and worship me. That's dangerous. Sounds like a win-win, right? Jesus, you get the kingdom and you get all the glory. And Satan gets to worship. And it's something we have to be aware of. You see, we want the kingdom equivalent and the glory equivalent. Satan wants to worship. He's happy to give things to you if he will receive that attention and that worship. And interestingly, he wasn't even asking for exclusive rights. He didn't say that you only must worship me. He said, no, just bow down, worship, that's it. After that, you can go back to your churchy things. Just agree with me on this one point, can already, no problem. After that, you go run your Bible study, attend the Kingdom 101. See how sneaky he is? He doesn't tell you, you just said you have to worship Him only. And later on, we'll see how we should worship God only and how Jesus answers that. Sounds good, right? You can have your cake and still eat it. And that's a problem with us and with temptation. I'm so thankful that Jesus definitely heard the fine print. And so you'll find that when we are propositioned with something like this, there's always a decision to make, yes? So Jesus makes a decision and his decision is based on a conviction. I hope you get this one. You can't make a decision without a conviction. Or shall I put it the other way? Whatever your decision might be, it will reveal your conviction or the lack of. That's why Jesus was able just to look at the, the devil and say immediately, away with you, Satan. I want to believe that there wasn't even a split second where Jesus was to say, uh, let, me, let me pray about this, Ken. Let me think about this. No, no. It was clear. Away with you, Satan. The decision was to reject the enemy, was to resist the devil. And it's biblical again, because in James chapter 4, verse 7, it says, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Friends, you must know what to resist and what to flee from. Many people get the other way around. They try to flee from the devil because they are so scared of him and they try to resist temptation. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says, resist the devil. The devil will flee from you. What do we do with temptations? You don't resist them. You flee from temptations. Don't think you're that strong. Right? In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, Paul tells Timothy, flee from youthful lusts. Don't even give it a second thought. If you're confronted with something, you feel you're being drawn to it, don't even try to consider. Flee. Turn. For the man, I would caution you because the moment something pops up onto your computer and you know it's pornographic, flee. Click away. Switch it off. See, the problem comes when you begin to consider it and you no longer flee, but you're thinking as you're staring on, the, on that screen, I'm trying to resist temptation. You have already fallen into that temptation as you consider. That's why Jesus was very clear. He says, away with you. Can you see this? Who's the real boss down here? Jesus was in control. The enemy wanted to gain control over the Messiah. But Jesus stayed in control because he knew who his boss was. 
And so he made a decision according to his conviction. And there he says, For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only you shall serve. That was his conviction. No questions. Anything that countered that, straight no. And that's why I'm, I'm so convinced that you need to know who your God is. You need to know what your assignment is. You know why we are so easily distracted? That's because we don't have a clear focus. We don't know what we're aiming for. We don't know where we're going. And that's why when the options come, we are lost. We are so easily pulled to the left, pulled to the right. But if you know who your God is, who your boss is, who you're serving, then can I say, you have a better chance to say no to a lot of things. You will not veer. Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. And of course, if you want, you can read 14 and 15 onwards. It says, You shall fear the Lord your God and serve Him, and shall take oaths in His name. Verse 14, You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are all around you. For the Lord your God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. When we look at Deuteronomy, the language of Deuteronomy is what we call covenant language. God is saying, look, I'm your God, you are my people, and these are the conditions that we fulfill. Jesus knew the Word. Jesus was convicted about the Word of God, and nothing would rock Him. How convicted are you with the Word of God? How much of the Word do you know? Because when you face a certain situation and there's a decision to make and you do not know the Word of God, what's going to guide you? Who's going to guide you? Our conviction of the Word of God will determine our decision in times of temptation. But you know, there's something that's more important and even more significant than that. Not just your conviction about the Word of God, but your relationship with the God of the Word. That will make all the difference. Because sometimes in the church, as Christians, we may know the Word of God, but not have a relationship with the God of the Word. And so it becomes just a whole bunch of rules, a whole bunch of regulations. Oh, yeah, so difficult, you know, can do this, cannot do that. You know, and we get really frustrated, you know, with all the do's and don'ts. So whilst knowing the Word of God is good, let's not miss the God who gave the Word. And that is going to make a huge difference. And so more than asking you, do you know the Word of God? I want to ask you, who is God to you? Do you have a relationship with this God? That's the overview I want to give to you for these three verses. The enemy comes against Jesus, tries to, to rock him as a, with, with, with a final salvo, throws at him everything, because what he wants is worship from Jesus. And Jesus rejected him, made a decision, because he had a conviction. And that's why I ask you this evening as you consider something like that, who's the boss? Who's your boss? You know, deep within all of us is this desire and this urge to, to be in control of our own lives, right? We want to make the decisions. We want to do what we want to do. We don't want anyone to tell us what to do. But if you and I, we are sons and daughters of God, it doesn't work that way. We have an accountability to the King. And we report to Him. And He really is our boss. Okay, I use this word boss very loosely and figuratively. Uh, in biblical terms, you would use the word master. And I don't want you to look at this word boss and think of Jesus as someone who's going to beat you down. That's not the idea because we know He's a good boss. He's a loving boss, a loving master, a benevolent ruler. Even God the Father, we know He loves us, right? So don't get the wrong idea just because we use this word boss because most of the time we work with terrible bosses. Don't tell your boss that. I want to move on to the second part and we'll spend some time in this. I want to explore three things that we can draw from 
this lesson or this teaching. And as I go through this, I hope it will help you process. So the first one is, we're going to look at this thing called blessings and baits. And the first thing I would like you to consider is this statement. Satan also knows how to bless. Agree? Satan also knows how to bless. But the thing about Satan is that he can use the blessings, whether by him or by the Lord or someone else, as baits. Let me digress a little bit. When the song, Blessed Be the Name of the Lord, came out, and there's a bridge that says, um, you give and take away, you give and take away. I was surprised when I came across a couple of people who when they sang that song, they refused to sing that line. They will never do the bridge of the song. Because their conviction is, God only gives, God never takes away. Because He's a good God, so He only gives. How can a good God take away? And if we look at the story of Job, who was the one who actually took all these things? It was the devil. So let's go blame the devil. So you cannot say God takes away because he doesn't do that. Only the devil takes away. But today I want to challenge you if you even have that thought. Because the devil not only takes away, the devil knows how to give also. He not only takes away, he's well capable of giving many things. And they're all attractive, they're all beautiful, and they're mostly exciting and enticing. And that's why they're called temptations. The devil can give. But in his giving, in his inverted commas, blessing, is a bait. He's not giving with good intent. He's always giving with his ill intent. And once you catch this bait and you bite on this bait, and once you are hooked, it's hard to get out. What he's trying to do is to not just reel you in to his own uh, uh, devices, what he's trying to do is to take you out of God's plan. So in that, he does take away. He takes you away from what God wants you to be and where he wants you to be. And the enemy will stop at nothing. I told you he's sneaky. He's twisty. He will throw nice things in your path. He can give. He knows how to bless. Because now we ask ourselves then, does it mean that all material things and all physical things, are they necessarily bad? No. That is the wrong extreme that you would go to, right? Because some people will say, oh, then that means blessings are bad. Like they're all baits, but no. God loves to give His people good things too. You remember when God brought Israel into the land, it is a land flowing with milk and honey. When it came to the time of David and Solomon, they had plenty. They had so much gold. They had so much silver. They didn't even know what to do with it. See, God is not opposed to us enjoying these material things. Who wants to say amen? But He knows that is not everything. And there's a huge possibility that we may overly focus on these. Then we have to ask the question, then God, why you give? It's such a dilemma, right? You know, we want God to give, but if He gives and when He gives and we focus, then it's no good. Then how? Ayo, so difficult. But therein is the lesson. God loves to give us the things and He allows the things to come into our life because in even the good things, there's also a test and a decision to make. You see that? And the test is to prove us well before the Lord. The temptation is to prove us disqualified. So the enemy wants to throw good things at us or use the good things to draw us away so you'll show up how we are not worthy to receive many of these things. But God would prefer that it is there so it really tests us whether do we worship God for these things that He gives us or do we worship Him whether or not we have these things. Are you following so I want you to see the, 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 the discernment between a blessing and a bait. You have a decision to make. Do you continue to follow God and to keep serving Him whether or not you have these things? 
or only when you have these things, then you would serve God. When is it a blessing? When is it a bait? You have to learn how to discern, you see? And that's why you have to know the Word of God. You have to know the person, the character, and the nature of God. But at the end of it all, the test is still there. Do we love God for the blessings only? Or do we love God only for the nice things that He gives to us? What if the things are not so nice that we come across? That's a big question, isn't it? As we look at this point, we must consider our perspective of how we define ourselves as being blessed or how do we see things as blessings. I came across this article. It's been floating around on Facebook. You may have read it before. It was written by Scott Danny Miller. And the article is entitled, The One Thing Christians Should Stop Saying. Of course, that would grab your attention, right? What should we stop saying? And in this article, he contends. He says, we've been using this phrase, oh, I'm so blessed, or I'm blessed, or I have been blessed, too loosely. And usually when we say I'm blessed, it is linked to our material well-being. So if someone gives you $10, you say, oh, I was blessed with $10. Or if you're living in a big house, okay, then I'm blessed with this big house. And we tie the blessings, or this word blessings, with a notion of material prosperity. So he makes two comments. He says, first, when I say that my material fortune is the result of God's blessing, it reduces the Almighty to some sort of skybound, witch-granting fairy who spends his days randomly bestowing cars and cash upon his followers. He says, I can't help but draw parallels to how I handed out M&Ms to my own kids when they followed my directions and chose to poop in the toilet rather than in their pants. Sure, God wants us to continually seek His will, and it's for our own good. But positive reinforcement? We've made God into a behavioral psychologist, you see. He says, then the second thing about, or second problem about the way we use this word, I'm blessed, is calling myself blessed because of material good fortune is just plain wrong. For starters, it can be offensive to the hundreds of millions of Christians in the world who live on less than $10 a day. You read that right. Hundreds of millions who receive a single-digit dollar blessing per day. Are we guilty of this? I, I know I'm guilty of this, right? That when we have something good, we say, oh, I've been blessed, I'm blessed. So if something didn't happen good, are you still blessed? You are, what? And so when are you blessed and when you're not blessed? That's a big problem, right? And have you seen some people where they have upgraded, let's say, from a smaller car to a bigger car? They say, oh, we're blessed. So if I drive a small car, means I'm not blessed. Nah. Oh, you're still blessed. Oh, I'm less blessed. <laughs> Can you see the problem here? And we don't realize it because, I mean, in our good intention, we want to say praise the Lord for this blessing we have. I'm not saying you, you shouldn't be grat uh, 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 appreciative and uh, have good gratitude. No. But I'm saying the way we see bless in our affluent, materialistic type of culture, we attribute it to material possessions. How did Jesus use the word blessing? We're going to get into this when we finally come back and get to it. In Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes. Listen to his words. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the poor in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. These say, blessed are those with a jet plane, blessed are those with big houses, blessed are those with a huge bank account, blessed are those with the latest iPhone 6S. No, right? You do notice? The degree of blessedness or the definition of blessedness is not contingent upon any one of these things. The material things, I mean. It is really a character and the issue of the heart. And I think we have to really be convinced that we are already blessed in Christ, regardless our standing materially. Amen? We are blessed. 
And this blessing that we have in Christ, you can't quantify it. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 tells us that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And I want you to know some of these spiritual blessings we experience while we are here in this life. But you are not going to get all of it down here because there's going to be a time where we will meet with the Lord and you're going to experience every spiritual blessing that you actually missed out here on earth. Now, some of you will find it hard to, to accept that. You, know, you mean I don't have everything? No, you have everything. As, except that in this life, on this side of eternity, you experience some of it here. And let's be fair. And let's not, not, not let's be fair. Let's be aware. In this entire world, the, the distribution is never going to be equal. Don't hope for that. It's not going to be over. That's utopia. Even the communists try to do it. It's not working. You want to do it well? Lift the kingdom. And how many of us fail even when we try to do that? It will only happen when we finally meet with the Lord, you see. But we have this promise. We are blessed in Christ. Meaning to say, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ... All's good. Amen? If you are in Christ, all's good. It's not dependent on whatever we have or whatever we don't have. Stop looking for additional blessings outside of Christ. Is Jesus enough or is Jesus enough? Christ fulfills us. He's our all in all. And sometimes for us, because we live in a very materialistic and a very rich and prosperous part of the world, it's hard for us to understand this. When you read the accounts of the refugees and you read the accounts of people who are persecuted in the Middle East, you don't even have to go that far. You can just go to the third world countries and you, you find that those who are living in poverty and they're just crying out to Jesus and just, they're just happy and smiling at times. You understand blessedness in a different degree. The second thing I want us to consider is this notion of gratification that comes instantly. It's as if our entitlement. The world tells us these things. You can have it all. Enjoy it. Have your cake and eat it. You want to get rich? I'll show you how to get rich quick. Join my company. Join my business. This person made how many thousand in one month? We've heard all that. And you join, you work like crazy, nothing happens. Because there's just no get rich quick scheme that works. There's no such thing as that. But people are still falling for it. People ask you, wait a little bit, a few days, but I want it now. We live in the instant noodle generation. Today, I just got the Wi-Fi guy to come and check my system because I have to wait three seconds more for the page to download. I was so frustrated. Okay, can you see the problem here? Because we keep wanting... Faster and faster speeds. That's the pace we live at. And so the point about success, we want it fast. We want it now. And so that's why the enemy, the devil came to Jesus and said, why wait? Don't wait. You can have a kingdom right now. And you don't even have to worry about anything else. You don't have to suffer for it. Just do what is needful. Get a success because you deserve it. For us in ministry or wanting to serve Jesus, we have to ask this, is it okay just because we do it in the name of Jesus, His kingdom and His ministry? Do you know that churches and ministries and even ourselves, we can get into a very dangerous zone because we use the name of Jesus to justify why we do certain things. We want a bigger ministry. We want a church to you know, do well. And the end sounds very spiritual, sounds very nice, seems to justify the means. Some people cut corners. Some people do crazy things. And be careful because we can be promised shortcuts to success also. In the church in the past two, three decades, they've gone through this thing where they've focused primarily on church growth. If you look at the result of very large churches today, they are a result of the focus on church growth. I was sitting with a dear brother and he was just sharing with me. He said, you know, there are three gospels that is being preached today. 
One is called the gospel of the kingdom of God, which is the correct one. The second one is called the gospel of salvation, which means you know, get as many people saved as possible so they can go to heaven. Not ent entirely wrong, but not totally accurate either because you know, after that, you still need to point them to the gospel of the kingdom. So I asked him very curiously, I said, so what's the third gospel? I've never heard of it. He said, it's called the gospel of church growth. Where pastors have been taught or, or they bought into this idea that if my church is big, it means I'm doing well. If my church is big, it means that it's healthy. If my church is big, it means I'm favoured and I'm blessed. It's called the gospel of church growth. What are the common indicators of uh, success for ministries? They call it the ABC. A is attendance. B is must have building. How big is your building? C is cash. Are you financially rich or not? Your tithe how? The ABCs. And you notice, pastors, when they sit down together, they don't tell you this. I'm just whispering this to you, but it's recorded. <laughs> First we ask, what church are you with? Oh, we are pastoring. Oh, yeah. Then we ask, how big, is, how big is your congregation? Which building do you worship at? We size each other up with these things. What are the indicators of success? I attended a seminar recently by a Reverend Mark Holman. He's talking about faith at home. And he openly admitted that he was caught in this cycle. He said, the first thing I thought of was, how can I put in programs so that you will bring in the people so that we can fill up the place that we worship in? And when the place is big enough, we move to a bigger place, so we have to find more programs to find more people to fill up this place. So it was all about programs, about places, and all about people. And it all sounds right. And that's how deceptive this is, you understand? And this is what I'm trying to explain to us. And after you get all these and you think you sort of hit it just nice in that sweet spot and the favour of God is upon you, somehow you don't realise that pride comes with this success. Anyone starting a ministry, very humble, talk to me, I know. Because when we start a ministry, we don't know what's happening. Where are we going? We don't have, we have a lot of empty seats. That keeps us humble. Are you, are you hearing me? But at some point, when the ministry becomes successful or known or credible, oh, it's scary, I tell you. Pride suddenly just creeps in. This whole thing about success. After a while, if you're not careful, man, you can go down the wrong path. And we're seeing things happening, not just in Singapore, around the world. Big problems. Oh, but we're building the kingdom. Really? Whose? No one can admit this is my kingdom, right? We'll always say that it's God's kingdom. Who will know? We won't know. Finally, the Lord will bring to account all these things. And then we tell people, no, today success, you're blessed in Christ. No need the cross. You no need sacrifice. No such thing as suffering for Christians. And so my question is, you may have many members, but do you have any disciples? Because Jesus says this to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. There's a cross involved. The cross is about sacrifice. The cross is about suffering. Let me show you a little picture, a cartoon. I stumbled upon it yesterday. The original gospel, Jesus upon the cross, and we coming to the cross, Satan under his feet. Today is a contemporary gospel. We come to the cross. The cross is all decorated beautiful. Money, fame, glittery, stardom. And where is the devil? Hiding behind this false cross. You see that? Is that what we are buying into these days, friends? Possible? Yes, right? But they tell you, no such thing as suffering. As long as you believe correctly and you think correctly, no suffering is ever going to come to you. But if you look into the Bible and you read, if God's ways are higher ways than our ways, and that's true, that's why we can't fathom it many times, it's not just a way of wilderness, it's also a way of suffering. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. Go back and read it. It's about Jesus who is God. But he takes on the form of man. He comes all the way down. 
Obedient even to the point of death, death upon the cross. The lowest point, how low can you go? You can't go lower than that. Jesus himself goes all the way in to suffering. And after that, he's exalted to the highest place. Name above all names, King of kings, Lord of lords. Every knee shall bow, every tongue must confess. He's the one. Amen? See, God's kingdom ways are always opposite. And if the enemy promises you anything that's different from God's ways, you've got to sit up and take notice. You better be careful. For God, the way up is down. How low will you go? Will you wash the feet? Will you serve? That's success. And we may not be elevated now, but when we meet with the Lord, the glory will be received down there. But today, churches are getting you to look at glory now. And they're comparing who's bigger, who's better. Ah, I won't even go there. Do Christians suffer? Yes. You don't believe, like I said, take a plane to Syria. Go live in the Middle East for a while. I've got one final point here, but actually it's three points. You notice Satan was asking for worship. You bow down, you fall down, and you worship me. But Jesus replies and he says, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only you shall serve. And the first thing about worship I want to address is this thing about worship and fear. Because Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. But Matthew records, you shall worship. But if you go into the Old Testament, it says you shall fear. So is it worship or is it fear? Answer is yes. Jesus used the word worship and not fear, and this has led to a teaching where you know people are being taught that, oh, in the Old Testament in fear, you fear, but in the New Testament you worship. In other words, Jesus corrected the Old Testament because He's now giving you a correct interpretation. It was never fear. It was, it's now worship. So you shouldn't fear God anymore. I disagree with that teaching. I tell you that the word worship and fear, they're not contrary. They're synonymous. What Jesus is really saying is that you want to understand worship? Go back into the Old Testament, understand what true worship is. It is reverence, it is awe, and it will cause you to fall down flat on your face. That's what true worship is. It involves the fear of the Lord. And today, when we make worship contemporary, when we make worship all about us, I wonder if there's really reverence and awe in our expression of worship today. Now, some of you may not agree with me and want to fight with me on this. And I, you say, where do I see fear of the Lord in, in the New Testament? Plenty. Well, let's start with Jesus. Do you know He fulfills the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 11? And it says that He will be anointed with the Spirit of the Lord. And the Spirit is also the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. And in verse 3, it says that this is He who delights in the fear of the Lord. Jesus delighted in the fear of the Lord, friends. We have an example in Christ. By the time it comes to the book of Acts, everybody knows Ananias and Sapphira. Nobody wants to name their children Ananias and Sapphira. Oh, you know, they lied to the Holy Spirit. What happened? They were struck dead. The word is recorded. Great fear came upon the church. Fear of what? Fear of dying, perhaps. But they were afraid of lying. To, it's a fear of the Lord. The entire church had fear coming. I mean, don't go and tell the church, oh, you, don't, you, you, you didn't understand the teaching. Jesus is all grace. It's all truth. There's no more fear, you see. Don't worry. You get a few more people knocked down dead. No problem. They didn't understand grace. That's why. It doesn't make sense, you understand? It's not consistent. 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 7, verses 10 and 11, it talks about godly sorrow produces repentance. I've already talked about repentance. But in verse 11, it says, Observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What happens after that? What diligence it produced in you after you sorrowed, after you repented. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. Wow. Did you... Have you read this before? 
repentance, bringing you back into a right relationship with the Lord, would bring you into a correct understanding of your position with God that there is reverence, awe, and fear. Paul was writing to Christians. And this guy was the one who knew his assignment was to declare the gospel of grace. Now correct me if I'm wrong, friends. Read the Bible. Someone will then say, oh, but what about 1 John chapter 4, verse 18? Perfect love casts out fear, and God is love, so there should be no more fear. Read the context. Go back and read your Bible. In that passage, you're talking about on the day of judgment, meaning to say, I have no more fear of the possibility of judgment because I'm in Jesus Christ. Amen. But just because I've got no more fear of the judgment that is there doesn't mean I have no more fear of the Lord. God is still to be revered. He's still to be held in awe. It doesn't cancel out anything. If you want to understand worship, you've got to understand the fear of the Lord. I better move on. You're staring at me now. Your eyes are really big. We see the next thing. You shall worship the Lord your God and Him only you shall serve. See, worship involves serving. Our worship of God, knowing who He is, doesn't end there. It flows into the worship unto the Lord. Amen? You can serve. In, in other words, do things in church without ever worshipping God. Do you know that? And there are a lot of people in the church who are like that. You can serve without worshipping. But friends, you cannot tell me you're worshipping and not serve. It doesn't work that way. Worship and service, they go together. This word service is used for Levitical service, a priestly service. You and I, we are a royal priesthood. And for priests, we are to offer sacrifices. But today, you and I, we have no sacrifice to offer other than ourselves. Amen? We give ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto the Lord. And it says, this is your reasonable service. In other words, in NIV, it says, this is actually true and proper worship. So it doesn't matter how many songs you sing, how many darkened auditoriums you go to, how many Hillsong conferences you attend. If you come out of that place and you are not in service unto the Lord and you have not offered yourself as a sacrifice unto the Lord, then that was not worship. Worship and service go together. The verb, which is latrio, means to work for a reward. It's used of servants. And here I challenge you. Perhaps this is what the Lord is trying to remind us. That we as kingdom subjects, we are servants of the Most High. When we understand our kingdom assignments, friends, do you know that at the end, there will be a reward that awaits you? We need to know what we have been tasked to do. That's what our Keeper's Awakening is all about. And that is why Jesus in Revelations chapter 22 and verse 12, He says, Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to each person according to what they have done. And it's not just churchy stuff. It is service unto the Lord. We know our assignments, and we are out fulfilling them. Worship involves the fear of the Lord. Worship must flow into the service of the Lord. And the third aspect is worship and transformation. Jesus says, you shall worship the Lord your God and Him only you shall serve. Now this may make you ask a question, where is that word transformation? There's a book that's written by Gregory Beale. It's entitled, We Become What We Worship. Think about this. What you worship, you will become like that. You will act like that. You will talk like that. You might even look like that. So if you worship money, careful, you have money face. Really. If you, if you worship um, sex and pornography, you will look like a chikope, a dirty old man. Really, I'm telling you, it will show up in the face. 
You become like that. You talk like that. You live like that. In Psalm 115, verse 8, it says, Those who make idols are like them. So is everyone who trusts in these idols or worship these idols. We become what we worship. And that's why Jesus is saying, friends, worship God only. Only. Otherwise, you will be double-faced, triple-faced, quadruple-faced. And that is why you have Christians who look holy in church but come out. They look totally different. They talk totally. They live different because they are not worshipping God and Jesus only. We become what we worship. We have to ask ourselves, are we worshipping God truly or merely worshipping an image of God we have created for ourselves? Now, this is really deceptive because today it seems as if we are trying to remodel God. We're trying to change the image and the person and the character of God to suit us. Because we cannot meet up with His standards, we are changing the standards so that it will appear easier for us. Look at the story in Exodus. Israel that was saved out of Egypt. When Moses was up in the mountain, the people were getting all you know, fidgety and so on. They tell Aaron, can, can you just build us an image? And so they built a golden calf. That's all they understood because in Egypt, all they saw were images. All the idols. And they said, so they thought, you know, I, I need to create a God, this God in, my, in, in this image that will be a little bit different. So they did a golden calf. Then Aaron actually declares this. This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. He didn't name it anything else. He says, this is the God. You know, he truly wanted to worship the God that brought them out of Egypt, except that he created an image out of their own imagination. And you know, friends, today we do the same thing. We we're trying to make God more palatable for us. But our God is unchanging. He's the same. And so we don't want to change into His image. Instead, we change Him into our image. See, the worship of Jesus must change us. And if you understand true worship now, you notice this? Worship involves fear. The fear of the Lord will change us, friends. Read Proverbs, you read Psalms. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of. Is the beginning of. Is the beginning of. This gives us the answer and the explanation why. How many Christians have not even begun? Because there's no fear of the Lord. See, worship involves the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord will change us. Worship involves the service of the Lord, unto the Lord. When you serve the Lord, it will change you. That's what alignment is all about. We think we are very good when we begin to serve God. We think we are so great to bring our strengths and our talents and our abilities. And God shows you, He really doesn't need you actually. It is a privilege that we get to serve out of worship. See, as service and worship is true, we present ourselves. And then we say we, we refuse to be like the rest of the world, no more conforming to the patterns of this world, but we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. Now, if your mind keeps looking at the things of the world, it will never be renewed in the things of God. And if it's not renewed in the things of God, don't hope for transformation. We already agreed that suffering is a part and some would suffer more and some would suffer less, but nonetheless, there will be difficult challenges. And out of our worship as we suffer for the Lord, it aligns us, it refines us, and also it conforms us unto the image of the Son. That's Romans chapter 8, verse 29. There's a conclusion of the entire chapter that really talks about suffering for Jesus. See, worship and transformation, they go together. And so Jesus reminds us, serve God only. Worship God only. 
You know, Satan doesn't mind you serving God every once in a while. He actually encourages you to do that. You know why? It makes you feel good. Highly deceptive. It makes you think you have, you've done your duty. I'm so pious. I'm so religious. I lead cell group. I went mission trip. Now, I'm not saying don't go. Yeah? I'm asking you, are you worshipping and serving God only? Do you fear the Lord only? There's a very interesting account in 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 24 to 41. The Assyrians have already come in. They've taken over Samaria. And so, you know, they are, the, the people have come into that land and that's why we are the Samaritans and they are, they are half Jews and so on. But they face some problems in the land because they were worshipping their own gods and their own rituals. And so they say, wait, 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 hang on, so, you know, let's bring the priests back and tell us what's wrong with us, you know, because obviously the God of this land must, have been, must be unhappy. That's the way they think. So the priests tell them, say, no, no, you've got to fear God because this is Yahweh. And so they say, okay, fine, we will go through all the rituals, we will fear this God. And so what they did was, the, the Bible records they feared God, but they continued to serve their own God. So how did they fear God? Did they really fear God? No, probably superstitiously. Just to appease this God. Don't give me trouble, can already. But they continued to serve their own God. They don't worship. They don't serve God. They just keep Him happy a little bit, can already. Once in a while, drop your tithe inside. Do you realize Christians can be like that too? Where we pay our dues, and that's about all we do. They don't really fear God. They don't really worship God. They don't really serve God at all. So let's conclude. Let me ask you then, who's the boss? I've gone through points with you and I'm trying to remind all of us that we can only have one boss. We can only have one master. Otherwise, your devotion will be split. Your loyalty will be questioned. It will be challenged. Your worship you just can't be there. Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. Some of us will justify to say, oh, but we don't worship anyone else. Nothing else, really nothing else. But if you allow the Lord to search our hearts, most of the time we serve us. This is the God here, right here. And the enemy doesn't even have to get you to, to, to worship any other idol or to or any other religion. All he needs to do is to entice you to worship yourself. That's also enough. That's how deceitful it is. You understand? And this is the problem that we are facing in a, in a world that's materialistic. Anything that takes you away from Jesus is good for the enemy. He just wants you to know you're the boss. You don't have to answer to anyone else, not even to God. Because everything is taken care of. All's cool. And so let me remind you, blessings are delightful, but these can also become dangerous baits if desires are left unchecked. Please remember, there are no shortcuts to success. The ways of the world, the way they define success is very opposite to the way kingdom success is determined. Christians are not exempt from suffering. I don't want you to suffer. This is not my prayer for you. My prayer for you is that if you do come into suffering, you will know how to handle it. We must be aware and careful of the commercialization of worship today. And as I shared with you, I hope you're convinced, we have gone far off. And I pray that we can rediscover what true worship is. It's not just a feel-good thing. It involves the fear of the Lord and it outflows into service to the Lord and to His people. So dear friends, as we close... Let me ask the final question once again. Who's the boss? Is Jesus king or is Jesus king? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the lesson in this third temptation. And Lord, as we look at the example of Jesus, as we see his conviction that led to his decision, Father, don't let it just become a nice story that we talk about, nice spiritual principles that Jesus has conquered the enemy and truly He has done that. We rejoice and we praise You for that. But because of what He has done, He has set an example for us. 
And we want to live right by you, Lord, because we confess. We come into these temptations over and over and over again. And Lord, as we have learned this evening, many of these are very subtle. We can't even tell. But Lord, Holy Spirit, if you have opened our eyes tonight, Lord, then I ask that you help us. That there's not a spirit of condemnation here to show us how bad we are. But Lord, you are just opening our eyes so that we can walk right with you and not presume upon the work of Jesus Christ and His grace. We know that your grace is sufficient for us. And it is because of your grace that we continue to live and to walk through this world. So lead us, Lord. Guide us, Lord, to understand what true worship is. Let us rediscover the fear, the reverence, and the awe of you, Lord, in our lives. Let it not stop with just a song, Lord, but it will outflow into our service and our assignment for your kingdom. And so, Lord, be with all my brothers here, Lord, and my sisters, that we can discern a blessing from a bait to understand success and even to embrace a difficult time and a challenge because you say, as disciples, we will follow you as we take up our cross, deny ourselves, and to live for you. You are our boss, you are our king, and for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.